Welcome to the Spirit Lake Wellness Podcast. Today, Dr. John Ewing and Kathy Kocher discuss telemedicine, effective therapy, and more. So you've worked in the healing profession, helping people to deal with difficult circumstances. And I was kind of hoping that you might share with us what you've learned is important actually makes a difference what 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 helps people what makes a difference well that's that's been really interesting because you know we've just as a country we've just gone through you know three years of having mental health be really different yeah because we we have had restrictions on being able to meet in person and i think i think as a as a mental health professional I've always thought that the important connection that made therapy work was that face-to-face, in-person relationship, that therapeutic relationship. Yeah. And and I think we all thought that. Yeah. And then and then COVID. Yeah. And um, I learned that I could be just as effective doing play therapy with kids and work with adults with psychotic disorders and couples therapy and all of that through telehealth yeah remotely and and i think a lot of people were really surprised at that it's a different skill set as a therapist you you have to you have to have a slightly different skill set so instead of instead of having a little kid in my office and using puppets to talk about feelings and emotions um, I'm instead saying, hey, why don't you go to your room and get a stuffed animal that makes you feel happy and get one that makes you feel sad and get one that you like to hold when you're scared and bring them in here and then tell me their names. And, you know, and then, you know, you have you, you do the same kind of work. Yeah. Kind of bend it around how you do it on screens. Yeah. And it, it was fascinating. It was an amazing growth experience for me professionally. And, and there were a few consumers, clients that I worked with that it was not a good fit. You know, when, when, you're, when you're doing, you know, when you're doing therapy with a kid and, and the, the parent just hands them a cell phone and says, go, I, I felt I needed Dramamine. <laughs> just, you know, you know, cell phones going all over the place. But, uh-huh. but what we ended up- Holding the camera. Oh, it was brutal, man. But then, you know, you, you, you figure it out. You say, hey, you know, where can you set, where can you set me? You know, you yeah. become the phone. Yeah. Where can you set me? Okay. Hey, I can't see you. You got to move me again. All right. You know, and you, you, you get this different, different dialogue, this different way of interacting, but then you can, you can create that space where you can still do the work, which is, which was pretty cool. And, and it, it was, I was surprised by that. And I was grateful because the the changes to to our lives with the restrictions on movement and the stay safe at home and and you know masking and all of that it it just you know i want to think that i have a pretty good grasp on my mental health and it was hard and dealing with people that are already dealing with depression and anxiety and, and other disorders it was that much harder yeah yeah but, you know, what was it like for you? I mean, how do you do medicine and telehealth? Right. Uh, so in the field of addiction medicine, a lot of what we do is a physical exam, but it's 
kind of like, okay, how is this person moving? How are they talking? Uh, and you can do you can do most of that through the video. And so I had this idea that, oh my gosh, all these people are going to be taking advantage of me and getting prescriptions for controlled substances and then misusing them and relapsing and uh, it's going to be chaos. And, and that didn't turn out to be true. It turns out that uh, my stable patients, the vast, vast majority of them, stayed steady and stable. Then I'm connecting with new patients. You know, you worry that, okay, uh, you don't have enough bandwidth to, to teach them the things that they need to know about the medication and about substance use disorders and, and how to get better. And surprisingly, the results were not as bad as I thought they would be. I think there is benefit to seeing people, particularly that initial visit. But a whole lot of people, the population that I deal with, a lot of them just don't have the resources to come into the office, even if they only live a couple of miles away. A lot of them don't have cars. They can't take the time away from childcare. It's very difficult for them to, to show up at an office visit. And so I was able to continue care with a number of people that would ordinarily have been lost. So yeah, the results were way better than I, than I thought they would be. Uh, I think that there's still an advantage to the in-person visits, uh, particularly early on when you're trying to convey a lot of information back and forth. Um, but then once the relationship is fully established, I think the, the televisits are just fine and in the vast majority of, of situations. One thing that's interesting is that, yeah, we would do a lot of, of point of care drug screen testing to see, okay, are you really off of this and off of that? And of course, when you do that every time, patients learn how to manipulate the test and, <laughs> uh, uh, and so you don't detect those even though you're 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 screening for it and then um uh in when you're doing this remotely you don't have the opportunity to to you know okay let's have a sample let's see what's in there let's look at the test strips and see what they show um but really the the benefits to the patient are how well are they functioning yeah. you know uh how how what's their quality of life and so i've really come to look at uh substance use disorders and a lot of the distress that people have as as more of a quality of life issue uh, not so much uh whether they're using or not or how much they're using they're gonna feel so much better when they're not using, just like your experience with the opiates was, oh, I can think more clearly. I have more mental bandwidth. Yes. This is more fun. <laughs> yeah. That's, so that's kind of my experience. Yeah. I was really struggling when I would hear people talk about the mental health crisis because of COVID. And I was like, well, I'm not seeing that on my caseload. My caseload was was fairly stable during the 
the whole you know three years of, of isolation and restrictions um, but my caseload is I, I work for a county so I work with people for whom regular outpatient treatment was not successful therefore they come to us for a higher level of care and in that population I, I think the impact was not as noticeable where I did see definite changes in mental health was in the children of my friends who really are struggling right now to have a conversation. They're having a hard time making eye contact. Yeah. The, the social skills are, and I'm talking middle school, early high school, really having a hard time with those basic social skills unless it's through a screen somehow. If it's through a screen, they're great. You know, yeah. they can TikTok till the cows come home. Um, they can do a video chat. They, you know, but they can't talk on the phone because they don't have the visual cue and they don't know how to react. And and it's really hard to just, you know, have a conversation. But they'll text. You can text. Um, and that that I think is something that has has gone a little under the radar. Yeah. Because that yeah. was not the case before. Yeah, I. I often describe this as, uh, to a certain extent, to a certain extent, people have become feral. And <laughs> especially if you get out like on the, on the road, it's they, like all these feral like drivers out there just trying to own the road. It's like my highway. It's like, oh my goodness, <laughs> you ate too many Cheerios. <laughs> Well, and it, I had often wondered if, if schools still served that secondary education goal of socialization and, and teaching kids. You know, we all learn to walk on the right side of the hall. We all learn to stand when we stand and sit when we sit. You know, we, we learn about turn taking. I mean, we learn a lot of social structure in that school setting. It's a, the secondary agenda. And that's what makes us, you know, we can work in a factory. We know how the rules are. We, we, we can make it work. That's why I take great joy in walking down the left side of the hall sometimes because it's like, uh -huh. yeah. But, you know, some of these kids didn't get that for a period of time. And I think I think there's still, there's still benefit to that. I've noticed um, that when people do meet in person again, especially if there's more than about, uh, oh, say four or five people in a room, that the anxiety level just goes way up. Yeah. And part of it is selective hearing, that a lot of people can hone in on who's talking and sort their voice out from this background noise. And that's kind of atrophied a little bit. People, well, I think in that mix too is, large groups of people aren't safe. Yeah. You know, if there's more than five people, you might be at risk. If you if you aren't six feet away from somebody, if you're not all masking, I mean, this is really, I think this whole experience has scarred us a lot Yeah. around that. And I'm, I'm feeling that way now because of, of having chemo part of my life and wearing masks and never go out in public and just having that awareness. I mean, I'm not going to put a pool noodle on me, but, you know, I am definitely like, no, you're too close. You're, my, my personal space bubble has gotten much larger now. Yeah. And I, I wonder if some of that is from these kids being told, nope, can't do that. Nope, can't be around that many people. And now yeah. we're putting them back in situations where they're expected to be around a lot of people again. Yeah. yeah. So in terms of, of uh, 
uh, interacting with people and therapeutic approaches. Teach me what you've learned about what helps people to be less sad, less mad, less afraid, and better connected. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of that is is basic, you know, the kind of the basic things that we've always used when people are struggling with anxiety. You know, doing breath work, doing grounding exercises, doing mindfulness, having a meditation practice, if that fits in your life. Um, just those things that kind of, um, I, I, I did a lot of training in dialectical behavior therapy and one of the modules is distress tolerance. And I think that is such a good fit for so many people. You know, okay, you're feeling, you're having that body awareness, you're not feeling comfortable, you're getting anxious. Okay, what are, what are three things that you can see right now? What can you describe? What can you, you know, I forgot the, the, the term, um, but what are, what are, you know, what, how can you just observe and describe what's happening just in your own mind? Yeah. Okay. Right now there's, there's seven people in the room and I'm feeling anxious. Um, I feel like I need more space. Oh, I can, I can step back. I can sit in a different chair. You know, how do you start building those skills um, for people, kids and adults? Um, just around managing what's what's having you know having that awareness of what's happening and then bringing some of those skills in. I'm a big fan of breath work because you know you can do that so subtly. No one needs to know that you're managing anxiety. You're just <laughs> you know I teach I teach the most of the people I work with I teach them um, square breathing. Yeah. Shape, I call it shape breathing. And I said, just just look at just look at something in the room that's rectangular or square and just start at the top and breathe in, you know, four, four or five seconds and then hold it four or five seconds and then breathe out four or five seconds and then hold it four or five seconds and then do that again and just follow that shape. So you have the visual cue, you have the breath work that that teaches your body to, hey, okay, this is not a fight, flight, or freeze situation. We can we can get that that vagus vagus nerve system, you know, all of that, we can calm it down. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not as adept at you as you, John, about knowing all the right words. I just know we have two different nervous systems and one of them can really mess with us. <laughs> if yeah. we're not careful. The autonomic nervous system. Yes, yes. And, and if we do that controlled breath work, it's like yeah. whacking it with a hammer. Just like get get yeah. back in line, knock it off. We're we're yeah. safe. We are not being chased by saber toothed tigers. We are good. Yes, today, maybe today. tomorrow. Today. <laughs> and and sometimes I teach people mantras. You know, one of the mantras that that I use is right now in this moment, I'm fine. Yeah. And sometimes when I'm having anxiety, uh, yep, yep, right now in this moment. I'm fine. And, you know, talk to people in a therapy session about what, what is reassuring to you? What helps you when someone else says it? What helps you when you say it to yourself? Yeah. You know, and then you, you build that skill set because some people have never had that, don't have the concept that they can change their self-talk. Yeah. Yeah. Changing your self-talk is a pretty useful skill yeah and it dovetails so nicely into changing that internal tension 
Yes. Yeah, because we get those interjected voices from our childhood. You know, a teacher, a, a priest, a parent, a, a sibling, mm -hmm. you know, and then, you know, after a period of time of hearing all those messages, you're stupid, you're lazy, you're dumb, you're you're not smart enough, you're not pretty enough, what's wrong with you? You know, whatever those messages are, they're, they're always negative. We never remember the good ones. You know. Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> we tend not to remember the good ones. We hang on to those negative ones like like crazy, and then, oh, yeah. and then after a while, they don't need to say them anymore because we're we're self talking it to ourselves. Oh, you can't do that because you're not going to be good enough. No, you're not. No, you're going to fail. Don't try. Yeah. You're not smart enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not tall enough. You know, and 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 then getting to a point where you can say, yeah, but that you're controlling that self-talk. We can change that. So every time you say, every time you say you can't, you can't, you know, I'm going to challenge you to come up with two things you can do. Right. You know, I can't go to a restaurant by myself. Okay. But what are two things you can do? You can drive there and you can afford to pay the bill. Yeah. So I've noticed that, um, a lot of people, uh, they develop habitual ways of thinking that sometimes they're no longer even aware of. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's almost like we've got our autobiographical memory system and then what we call intrinsic memory, which is stuff you've picked up just through repetition. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, some of these assumptions are just so deeply buried, well, people don't even know to share them with their therapist or right. how do you how do you address those well i i think sometimes the job of the therapist is to really approach that consumer that client with curiosity we have to ask we can't assume that a person is going to come into your office space and know what they need to tell you to help get better you you have to you have to ask you have to say well you know, where do you, okay, I'm noticing you have some kind of negative self-talk about that. Where do you think you picked that up from? Whose voice is telling you that? Yeah. Oh, that was your mom. Okay. You know, or that was, you know, your dad, or that was the neighbor down the street, but they said it so loud in such a scary way that it just immediately created this deep engram in your brain. And, you know, and, and, and so, okay, so how can we you know, do those things. So I, I just think really being curious is important. Because um, sometimes it's easy to just take what they bring and work with that. And I think our job is to try to go content versus process is yeah. the, the, the loop that's always going in my brain. You know, they're bringing me a lot of content. My job as a therapist is to dive under that and get to process because process is where change happens. Yeah. You know, content pays the bills. I mean, if I just want to work with the client for the next 20 years, we can focus on content because if we don't oh, yeah. process, it's never going to change. We're always going to deal yeah. with the same content over and over and over. Yeah. And I don't think that's good therapy. No. Symptom relief, yes, but uh -huh. it's therapy. Yeah, I think there's a benefit in listening to people because then they get to hear what they're saying. <laughs> yes, yes, and I, I, that's so important. Um, you know, like like as a doctor, I would imagine when I go to the doctor, I know what the problem is, and I know what I I have a pretty good idea what needs to happen to make it better. 
Uh -huh. Well, if the doctor just said, oh, okay, yeah, sure, that's this. Um, oh, okay, like with, with the, I went in, I went to the emergency room because I was having a lot of um, upper abdominal pain. And I said, I think it's muscles. I think it's, I think it's because I lost, you know, 30 pounds really quick and I wasn't doing anything to keep myself fit. And I think I've pulled something or strained something. Okay, well, you know, we'll, we'll discharge you with a referral to physical therapy. But, you know, since you've said like eight times that there's a $300 copay for coming to the ER, why don't we do some blood work and a CT scan just to rule out yeah. some things? Sure, okay, fine, I'll get my money's worth. This is awesome. That's when they found the mass in my abdomen that turned out to be the cancer. Had she not taken that extra step, I would have gone to physical therapy and I might still be undiagnosed. Yeah. So it's it's kind of the same thing. You have to you have to kind of just dig a little deeper. Yeah. And take it at face value. Yeah. Because I knew what was wrong and I was totally wrong. <laughs> <sighs> oh, where people are amazing. And that denial, sometimes I think denial is a good thing. And then there's times where no, it's not that good, you know. I think there's a place for denial. Mm -hmm. I, I think when we when we have experienced trauma, uh -huh. um, I think denial and disassociation are, are, can be very protective until we are at a place where we are safe and we are ready to work through those things. Yeah. I think our, our brains have an incredible capacity to keep us from running screaming into the night. Yeah. I, I, one of the things that breaks my heart and I absolutely love about working with kids, um, some of the things that happen to kids are heartbreaking. They're horrific. How, how I don't understand. I can't even conceive of, of what kind of person you have to be to create those kinds of situations for little children. And the resilience of these kids, they get up every morning, they get dressed, they go to school. They, they eat, they watch TV, they get in fights, they play sports. I mean, and I'm like, wow, that is, that is so amazing to me. And it, it creates so much hope yeah. that, you know, you can have these horrible trauma histories and you can still have a good life. Yeah. And some of that is because of denial and dissociation. You just kind of put it over there and don't deal with it. Yep. Yeah, unfortunately, my job is to say, no, we really have to deal with this because otherwise it's going to keep coming up and creating problems. Yeah. That's kind of the crappy part of my job. But yeah, when it's successfully done, you know, that kid can leave that behind. Yeah. And that's a gift. Thank you for listening to the Spirit Like Wellness podcast. Spirit Like Wellness is a 501c3 dedicated to health and wellness education. Learn more at spiritlikewellness.org.